0: Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taberah. Can you say Taberah? It? it means burning, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like that of delium. The people went out and gathered it, ground it on millstones, beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of a pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses was also displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid this burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land in which you swore to our fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here. And now, if I've found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Some of you get that kind of drama queen as you hear that. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. Just kill me now. So the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there and take up the spirit that is upon you and I will put the same upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. Oh, you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days. Oh, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we ever come out of Egypt? Moses said, The people who I am among are 600,000 men on foot. And yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them. And the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Oh, now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the seventy men of the elders of Israel and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested on them that they prophesied, although they never did it again. But two men that remained in the camp, the name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. Good friends with names like that. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were, not, they were among those listed, but had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told a young man, ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, one of the choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Uh, Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side. All around the camp and about two cubits, a cubit remembers from your elbow to the tip of your finger, roughly about a foot and a half. So two cubits is roughly about a yard. About a meter above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night. And all the next day and gathered the quail, he who gathered least gathered ten homers. That's, by the way, just to give you an idea, that's roughly 13 wine barrels. That's the guy who gathered the least. Gathered about that, about 58 bushels. And they spread them out, don't miss this, for themselves all around the camp. The word around is the word "saviv," and the word means in a circle which tells us that it wasn't inside the camp, it was on the outside surrounding the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, you got a little bit of a taste, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So they called the name of the place, Can you say, Kibroth Hata'ava. Kibroth Hata'ava. Kibroth Hata'ava which means graves of craving. Because they buried the people who had yielded the craving. And thus, graves of craving. From Kibbutz HaTava, the people moved to Chetzerot. Can you say Chetzerot? Chetzerot, by in the way, means like an enclosed yard. And the people moved there and camped at Chetzerot. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for what you're going to do in this time. Thank you for the honor And the privilege of being able to turn our hearts to you, to seek your face, to seek your blessing, to seek your guidance, Lord. And we pray today that we would have so much fun in your word, but we would be instructed, that we would be challenged, that we would be taught, that we would be equipped. Lord, that you would speak to every one of us in such a way that none of us would be left alone. Lord, that if there be any who have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, let this day be the day of their salvation. If there are those, Lord, who are living in rebellion, let this be the day of their repentance. If there are those, Lord, who are discouraged, let this be the day of their encouragement. For the weak, you you bring them strength. For the confused, bring them peace and clarity. For the troubled, bring them rest. Lord, we have come, Lord... To, in all of that, not just seek the rest or the blessing or the encouragement or all that. Let that be the means to the end. And let you be the end. That in the end, we would find ourselves right where we belong with you. That's what you want. So, Lord, let your word burst open and come alive. Redeem every second of this time now, Lord, I pray. Captivate us in your truth. And, Lord, let us truly and absolutely be transformed as you now engage with us in your word. Oh, Lord, speak to every one of us individually where we need to be spoken to and corporately as a family. Unite us now under the cause, Lord, of bringing you great praise and living a life where we delight in your delight. Oh, Lord, now do what you want, what you want to do, and we are eager to see that. So have your way. In Jesus' name, fill me with your spirit and do through me what I cannot humanly do now. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. That's the point here. Now, please understand, the journey we're taking up to this point now has been a pretty tenuous, well, it's been a pretty rough trip. All the way back, since Genesis 3, God has sought to be among his people. If you think about it, since Genesis 3, God has not really been among his people. They have been slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And if God is going to be among his people, he must first remove them from that slavery, from the hand of the enemy. And that's what he does first. He raises up a man named Drawnout, Moshe, and he brings them out into the wilderness. But please understand, God did not just remove them and hike them straight to the promised land, but rather God has some work to do in the wilderness. You see, in that wilderness, the old generation is going to die so that the new generation can step into the place God has for them. And the same happens with us. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, please understand that the Bible teaches that we are all sinners. And our sin is deserving of death. Every one of us, it doesn't matter whether you're just somebody who thinks that you're a misdemeanor compared to the person next to you that's a major felon. In the end of it all, we stand guilty before a holy God that has a right to punish all sin. And any judge who leaves sin unpunished or wrong unpunished is an unjust judge. But our God, in his perfect love, had made one provision. And that provision is that if somebody holy and perfect without crime would stand in your place voluntarily he would be willing to receive that man's payment in your stead well the problem is nobody else on the planet is equipped for that the problem is i've got my own sin to deal with so i can't take yours i got my own so god knows the only person equipped for that is himself and thus comes to earth Clothes himself in human flesh, tempted, listen, in every way, the Bible says. There is no temptation you've experienced that Jesus wasn't tempted with. Which tells me that temptation isn't sin, it's what you do with it. And though he was tempted in every way, Jesus never said yes, or okay, or it's just a little. No was his answer. From beginning to end, from the birth to the toe tag, that God in the flesh refused to sin. Because one sin would have made him imperfect and we would have all gone to hell without a choice. But by his choice, he chose to volunteer that death on the cross for us. Now please understand, if you lined up every religious leader on the planet and said, which one of you is willing to die for me? Only one step forward. If you would ask, which one of you is perfect so that my sins could be imputed upon you? Only one could step forward, and he did. And it's the same person, Jesus the Christ. Nobody else could take your sins upon him because only he who was without sin. And it tells us in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the rightness of God through him. Jesus volunteered and stepped in our place. How do I know it was enough? The same way that once a year we went to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when we knew that a man went in and laid down the blood of an innocent animal for our sins, how do we know God accepted that sacrifice? Because the high priest came out alive again. And in the same way, my high priest, Jesus the Christ, went into the grave and three days later came out alive again. And if you ask then, how many of you stepped into the grave, volunteered for me, were perfect, and then came out alive again? Still the same guy and only him. Every one of those things disqualifies every other person that's ever been on the planet but Jesus. Every one of them. And with that then, Jesus offers us the gift of salvation. Ephesians tells us it is the gift of God, not the works of men, lest man should boast. You cannot get saved by anything but the gift of Jesus Christ. And with that, the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ, God begins this beautiful work inside of you. He is so into being near you that the moment you say yes, he comes and moves inside you. You can't get closer than that. And he begins house cleaning. He doesn't just redecorate. He doesn't just relocate. He actually reinvents. Tears that thing down from the, we say tore up from the floor up. And The reason is Jesus needs to be, and please hear me, He needs to be our foundation. Not a cool wall hanging, not just some really nice paint for an accent wall. He needs to be the foundation. And as he is, everything is built upon him. Now please hear me. In the same way, that's what we're watching with the Israelites. God, desiring to be among his people, knows that it must take sacrifice of innocence for this to happen. Substitutionary sacrifice. And thus, once removing them from the land of slavery, God says, I want to be among you now that I've got you out. Now, let me get among you. I want to be at the center of your camp. I want to be the very middle. And so in Exodus 25, as Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments, and then and don't miss it, it wasn't the only thing he got. He also got the blueprints. God said, now make me a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. Literally, in the midst. And since Eden, we have not had such a thing. Out of the slavery we went, and at, out of the slavery we went, at the death of the Lamb of God, at the price of a firstborn son. In the same way, now off we went, and God starts the tedious task. Now that he's removed Egypt from our, us from Egypt, he starts the tedious task of removing Egypt from us. Because that old man that we once were, that old person we once were, will not actually flourish in the place God has for us. So now that that's the case, we've taken this journey, and we spend about a year at Mount Sinai, that place where the tabernacle gets constructed. That's the end of the book of Exodus. It ends with that tent being set up now. God's in the middle of the camp. Then he says, now that we have that the case, but you can't just approach me. There has to be sacrifice. Let's get the priests involved now so that sacrifice can happen, so we prepare us for that perfect sacrifice that will happen 1,400 years later with Jesus. And so thus, the book of Leviticus gets the priests going. Now we have the tent. Now we have the priests. And the only thing left now is our involvement. So God says, now listen, I want to be in the center of the camp. I don't want to be on a corner. I don't want anyone to have an inside track other than this. I'm going to be in the center of the camp. Three tribes over here, three tribes over here, three tribes over here, three tribes over here. But he doesn't say who has to be closest. That's your choice. And now that God, listen, 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 now that God becomes the center of our camp, everything becomes a little bit more, well, to be honest, definitive. Because now that that's the case, there are going to be some that will draw near to that tent, and there are going to be those that are going to veer from that tent. And it'll be the same with you. The moment that Jesus is more than just salt on your food or the side dish in your life, but the moment he becomes the center of your camp, there are going to be those that will be drawn into that with you. And there will be others that will be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Y'all used to be cool. I don't know, man. I can't hang with you anymore. And what we want to do is we're like, please, I'm losing a friend. Oh, no, they're going to go to hell. Well, they already are. And the fact that they're leaving at that point shows that they're really not interested in God being in the center of the camp. And can I just say, most people will not have a problem with you becoming a Christian until they discover you became a real one. Because when you become a real one, people start going, what about those other people that do nothing? And I'm like, let me ask you something. If you really believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation... And you believe that he lives inside of you and doesn't want anyone to go to hell. How can we be silent? I mean, what are we telling them? Well, I'm, I'm afraid you won't like me. <laughs> but let me guarantee you, they won't like you in the end if you didn't tell them. It'd be better to risk it now. So as God sets up the tent, now what we have is we have this very definitive space. Does that make sense? This is inside the camp. This is outside the camp. And then God starts making some distinctions. There's some things that need to be outside the camp. For instance, those that actually did the priesthood wrong, they were intoxicated, completely in the wrong way, boom, God fires them, all of their remains are brought to the outside of the camp. Leprosy and contagious diseases are brought to the outside of the camp. God doesn't want that in the camp. Not that he doesn't want the leper, he doesn't want the leprosy. Does that make sense? Now, please understand, God can heal the leprosy, cleanse the leprosy, and God says, once that happens, y'all coming back into the camp. You're not out there permanently, only as long as the leprosy is with you. God, God makes very clear for that. God tells us that the sin sacrifice has to be sacrificed outside the camp. But understand, before that point, before God becomes the center of the camp, Moses is outside the camp, and that's where God is with them. The people go out of the camp, the initial camp they go out of to meet God. And please hear me in that. The camp you started in. You know, the one where it was just your essays and your homeboys and the people you hung out with before you knew the Lord. You're going to have to leave that group to go and be with the Lord. And if that's your situation, understand that's because God has a new camp where he's in the center. Initially, we're kind of all hanging out and we're just all we know is Egypt. And God's like, come over here. And he's calling us out of that. And then he says, now let's set up camp here. And the moment God becomes in the center, the outskirts of the camp look a little bit dangerous. On the outskirts of the camp, please hear me. On the outskirts of the camp is where the complaining is. On the outskirts of the camp is where the disease is. On the outskirts of the camp is where the bloodshed is. On the outskirts of the camp is the kind of stuff you really don't want to dip your toe in. And the closer we get to the center, the more filled with joy and praise we are. And the farther we walk from that, the greater the complaining happens. And that's what we have in those first three verses, right? What we have in those first three verses, I want to remind you, is that the people complained and God then fried the outskirts of the camp. Did you get that? And I get the idea here that if the people were complaining near the tent, he would have fried the place near the tent. But he didn't because that's where they were. The fringe. One toe in the church. Five feet, if you had them, all in the world. You know, it's kind of like I just want to go. From, I'm going to go from the club, and I'm going to come here and sing a couple songs and Hallelujah, and God's going to be happy enough with that. Then I'm going to go have sex with somebody. Then I'm going to go get drunk. Then I'm going to go and have communion. But you know, it's kind of wine. What's really the difference? You know, and I'm going to pray. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And you wonder what happens with those people because they get fried quick. And God, please, please hear me. I think the rest of the world out there is staring at Christianity as what's represented as Christianity and wondering whether we would rather go into the tent we'd rather just hang out somewhere where we could still kind of shake hands with both sides. And if that's what we do, why would the world ever want to join that camp? When we're telling them Jesus is for saving, but the world's for fun? And all they're looking for is fun. They're not thinking about, you know, try to explain to a four-year-old their, you know, their future, and you should start investing in a, in a Roth, you know, and start buying bonds. They're like, what are you talking about? Just give me candy. That's what we are in this world. So now as we start seeing this, check this out with me, as we start looking now at verse 4 and moving on to it, because it really is so powerful. Now understand, for this to happen, and he talked about this trumpet-ready life, where the trumpets are ready, we're blown, we're going to start moving out. And the first thing, if you remember, is we let go of our hobabs, that stuff that we held precious, that were part of our old life, but not part of the new. And then from that, then God fried the outskirts of our camp. And now we get to verse 4. And did you notice in verse 4 there are two definitive groups? It says, the mixed multitude who were among them. So it was a group of people among another group of people. Did you get that? And it says, they yielded to intense craving so the people of Israel also wept. Did you get that? So what that tells me is there's a group of people that they were kind of not really integrated with this group. They were their own group and they cried first. They whined first. They complained first. <clears throat> I remind you, when God fried the outskirts of the camp, he didn't fried all of it, because Moses interceded, and as he interceded, God stopped. And I wonder how much of this would have happened had he fried the whole outskirts. Now, some of them have remained. Somewhere down the line now, you've got a group of people who really ain't part of this thing, but they're among them. Listen, they ain't part of this thing, but they're among them. And they're the quickest to complain, they're the quickest to whine, and they're the quickest to do this word. And the word means to bemoan. Now understand, there's a difference between a whimper and a sob and that man cry. You know, it's like one tear, you know, that kind of thing where you're like, I'm allergies, you know, that kind of thing. And that kind of, oh, <laughs> that's the word we're looking at here. And so you got a group of people that are like, oh! <laughs> that. and I get the idea these were Egyptian. Because it says that the other people cried. And when they say we missed the leeks and the garlic and these things, I guarantee you the Egyptians probably would have. The ironic thing is it seems to me like now, we don't know whether the slaves ate that stuff. It seems a little odd that they would, that they'd get these kind of table dainties. But I understand the idea that there's a group of people that really did. And when they start mouthing off, other people, they just kind of get caught up in it. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like... Vanilla Ice coming out of Compton, it just really didn't happen, but we sort of believe it for a while. You're like, oh, I miss it. I miss it. I'm like, you, you, what? You, never, you were never part of that. I missed it when I was gangbanging with my buddies, and I was, they called me Shorty. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're from Chelsea, you know? The closest thing you had is when you saw a game once, a match once, and they you know, they got rough at the end. But you know, we were never part of that. But somehow you pride yourself in it. And so there's this group, man, and they're like, you know what, we really... I remember Egypt a little differently than you remember Egypt. I remember it as a cool thing. I remember when, oh, we were getting it on, we were moving it, and we were moving it, and all of a sudden it was like everybody was around me, and they were liking it, but if somebody was honestly saying, no, people were pointing and laughing, you missed that part, but you just got that they were standing in a circle admiring you? No, no, see, that's what we do. Oh, man, I missed that. You know why you miss that? Because you're not looking in the camp, you're looking out the camp. And the center is a place of absolute and total joy, total peace. See, all the stuff the world is chasing after, they get sort of this temporary counterfeit. When we get the permanent payoff and we're still looking for the temporary, how in the world does that work? So they're looking and they're going, and you know what happens? They're kind of looking over the fence a little bit and going, "I mean, ours all green. That's all nasty and brown." But they're like, "I think I see a blade of green over there somewhere. I should get that one." Don't you miss it? Don't you miss it? Wondering whether you had an STD? Don't you miss it? Wondering whether you were pregnant? Don't you miss it? Wondering whether you got someone pregnant? Don't you miss it, wondering whether someone was going to get that on camera on some kind of someplace, and then you were going to wind up paying for it? You're going to do some time, the arrest, the angry guy you took the money from, whether we found out it was you and what would happen, the dealer with the bad crack or whatever it is. Do you, and some, but it's crazy. Someone will say, but don't you miss that? No. No, I don't. And the more my eyes are on the center where God is, the more that stuff is, well, take a look at it with me. So this is what happens. So here it is, the people, and notice the word yielded here, to intense craving. The word for craving here is the word ta'ava. Sound familiar? That was the word at the end, ta'ava. And the reason is, that's the word. They, and they, there was this craving that came and said, oh, you want this? And you can either say yes or no to it. To yield to it, you said yes. Same thing that James tells us in regards to when temptation comes and it brings forth, we yield to those things. And by the way, listen to me, the temptation is not the sin, it's whether you choose to yield. In this wilderness, the whole point of this is God, remember, wants to show us he's everything we need. He will provide for our every need. And so we pulls us out and we get thirsty and we complain instead of saying, God, now what are you going to do? We were backed against the Red Sea prior to that point, And we think, God, what, you know, we don't ask God, what are you going to do? We're like, oh, he brought us here to kill us. Now I'm thirsty. He brought us here to kill us. Now I'm hungry. He brought us here to kill us. Could you imagine? There's no, hey, God, how are we going to eat? Lord, can I have some food? Nobody, nowhere in Scripture do we read, God, can I have some food? God, can I have some water? But rather they just complain to Moses, oh, God brought us out here to kill us. And we're having a hard time learning. But we'll do the same thing whether you know it or not. Because what we'll do is, we'll go and go, oh, but now I'm going to, maybe I'll, I'll just die single if I'm going to be a full-on Christian. And then, you know, what's going to happen? I'm going to be alone. You know, Jesus is like, I died to be with you, and you're going to pull the alone card on me? How does that work? Really? So they yielded to intense cravings. And then the children of Israel wept as well. And listen to the question, who? Who will give us meat to eat? Who will give it to us? Now I guarantee you at a moment like that if anyone said I will give them meat to eat they would have gone. And that's what you'll do. Who will meet this need? That's been the whole problem in the wilderness is that God wants to show he's the who. It's an appetite. It's a need. I'm lonely. Who will meet this need? I'm confused. I need peace. Who will be my peace? I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged. I need encouragement. Who will be my encouragement? I know the bottle. I know I'll just go see six hours of The Hobbit. I know I'll just go and get in a new relationship. I know I'll go to the church and maybe if that pastor's free for that moment, he'll give me 12 hours of his time and he'll be my encourager. Hey, if we are not the bus to the end, we are a terrible end. So who will do it? We remember the fish, which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. So what happens? Look at this. Verse 6. Now our whole being is dried up. Can you say the word nefesh? Nefesh means a living being. It means that which is the base of appetite. It's usually used in regards to being pleasure or desire. And the idea of it here is my entire appetite, every part of me, my resplendence is now just dried up. And please hear me, these are the signs of what happens when we're staring out the camp. All that I see or seek will either bring me to the center of the camp or out of it. Everything, even my memories my memories will either bring me to the center of the camp where the Lord wants to make himself clear and there's total surrender or out of the camp completely to get where I think I deserve or what I think I need. And that becomes the problem. And if my eyes are staring out of the camp, that's what happens first as I start to dry up. What happens is we say, you know what, I feel like my walk is becoming very dry. You can still try to read, you can still try to pray, you can still try to listen to a Christian song here or there or whatever, but the bottom line is if you're out there looking outside of the camp for your satisfaction, you are going to dry up. Because the fountain of living water is at the center, and the farther you go from it, the drier it gets. And then they say this, There is nothing at all except this manna. The longer I stare out of the camp as well, the more, please hear me, the more I will make a mockery of God's provision. The more that I will, that that others will look and say, Is God enough? And I will convince them He's not. Psalm 92.13 says, He who was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. And please hear me. As your pastor or temporary pastor, if you just popped in here once, my goal is not to get you plugged into this church. My goal, my heart would be for you to come to know Christ and then get plugged into a church. One that is Jesus-centered. Because that's the heart here. If you want to stare out there at the world and say, that's where I need the moment you use the word need you've made a mockery of god's provision and i'll stare out there and i'm like i just the more i stare at that i dry up and you could go to some churches where it's like you take a picture you just take a picture of what you want and you put it on the wall and every day you say that's what i want but if it ain't in the camp you shouldn't want it because what you just did whether you know it or not is just made yourself an idol ah it's a red bentley it's, you know what my Christianity is? It's a red Bentley. And then Jesus to go and get me that red Bentley. That's what it is. Hey, Jesus is your master, not your master card. You need to know that. My whole being's drying up till I get my Bentley. You see Jesus going, wow, where in the world did Bentley say? It'll be a fountain of living water. Just, just sit in the soft Corinthian leather." Now, the manna, verse 7, says it was like coriander seed. Its color was like delium. Delium, by the way, is a stone that's about an amber color, and it's pearlesque. So it kind of glistens, kind of like mother of pearl. It's darker. And the people went around and gathered it. That's one of the reasons why Jesus will speak about our daily bread. And what did they do with it? Well, they ground it in millstones. They beat it up in the mortar, and they cooked it in pans, made cakes of it. And can I just say, it's interesting Because this manna was like mother's milk. It was everything they needed. God actually had a a fail-safe end-all. This will be perfect nutrition for you. And so what did we do with it? Well, some of us kind of tore it apart. Some of us kind of ground it. Some of us kind of made it something exciting and made it rise. But in the end of it all, if we ate it, we ate it. And we were not only kept alive, but we were kept well. To the point, by the way, where Moses' vivacity didn't even drop a bit. He started at 80 and was going to be out there 40 years with these guys. And I look at this and I start to think, wow. As a pastor who desires to see you and, and myself prosper in the Lord. And I know what it says in 1 Peter 2, too, when it says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And I get the idea, and people go, you know, but... You're just like about like the Bible. That daily bread, which, by the way, Jesus speaks of. You know what? You're right. You're right. You're like, but that's it. I mean, there's like nothing fancy. No. You know what you do? You grind it up and you take a look at it. You know what you do? You tear it apart and take a look at it. You know what you do? You get excited about it and you watch it rise in front of you. But in the end of it all, it's still manna. And You're like, oh, you're all about manna. It's just manna, man manna, manna. I'm like, you know what? You're sounding a little bit like the guys in Numbers 11 and it didn't work out so well for them. If it is what God prescribed, it really is enough. But you know what I really need? I need some expert that really speaks, like he's clearly from Cambridge or from Oxford, and he smokes a pipe because that somehow validates something. And he's got those cool glasses that sit on the edge of his nose, which also validates, and he sits in a leather chair, and then boom, he's the whole package deal. No matter what he says, must be beautiful and brilliant. And he's going to say something brilliant and crazy and out somewhere, and and we're going to spend six hours talking about how God's like the Matrix and this and that and how God's kind of like Captain America but a little bit more like the Hulk and and all of that stuff. And in the end of it, we're going to go, "Wow, that was amazing. And in the end of it, oh, but you never had any manna. So You know what we did? We had, like, candy floss, and it was so sweet, and we loved it. And then our stomach started to hurt, and then we got hyper over it, and then we, like, passed out, but we, we couldn't keep alive that way. You could do that. You could do that with a spiritual experience. You could do that with a with one of those praise and worship services where man the band and everything's so perfect and the light shows right and there's like laser beams going like you know it's like some guys like this is like the word and there's the Holy Spirit you know whatever and in the end of it all we had this crazy thing and we shook and we foamed and we had a great experience and then we walked out of there still with malnutrition because the man is still the manna and if you don't eat the manna you die. And you could go out there, and you could go into the wilderness, and you can lick rocks, and you could beat each other with towels, and you could run around with each other, and, and, and roll around in the sand, and make sand angels all day, and you can, you know, whatever, and you know. But in the end of it all, if you don't eat the manna, you die. And the people did for a while. They ground it. They did. They, they kind of looked and said, "Well, okay, let's do this with it, and we can do this with it, and we're gonna, you know." You've heard mannikotti and banana sandwiches, and, you know that kind of. But in the end of it all, in the end, all, well, they did it. But the problem is. In other words, the people had different ways to treat it and to deal with it, but the people were still at this point. They were like, oh, there's nothing but that, man. I'm so bored with Christianity. So bored with my walk. Can I say the reason you're bored if you are with your walk isn't because the world isn't in it. It's because you're far from the center where you belong. And there's nothing more exciting than dwelling with the living God who spoke and the universe came to be. Who at any given moment could just sneeze and every one of your atoms goes to a different part of the universe. Who can actually say, I'm going to use you to heal somebody today. I'm going to use you to deliver somebody from suicide. And you're like, but I'm just, a, I'm just. And God's like, yeah, you know what? You are, you're just a tool and I want to use you. Is that Okay. It's crazy, because all of the things I've jumped off and not looked at the bottom, sometimes with a rubber band attached to my ankle, sometimes not, nothing is more exciting than watching somebody come to know Jesus. And I open up this book, and the more I open up this book, the more I fall in love with the author, and I realize the whole book is a autobiographical love story where I'm the recipient. So it, flew, it fell every night. In other words, it's like it was everything we needed, and it was always there for us. It was always there for us, and it was all that we needed until we started looking out of the camp. And now, verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Listen, everyone at the door of his tent. Now we're looking at 2 million, million people all moaning at the, tent, the door of their tent. Every one of them. So let's just get an experience like that for a moment. You ready? Okay, everyone stand up for a moment. Pretend like you're at the door of your tent. And I want, let's just have somebody, let's put just somebody here. Mario, come stand in the middle, would you please? Mario, Moses, it's pretty close, it's kind of five <laughs> letters. Okay, now this is all I want you to, don't worry, you don't have to do anything but just stand here. Okay, I want you all to look at him, and I want you to whine. I'm going to have you whine, and I want you to do it for ten seconds. Just meh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't even have to make use words, but I want you to whine. Remember, you're bemoaning here. You're not just going sob, sob, a little, a little, that kind of British look. No, no, no. We're talking about open wailing. You know, we're talking about like Australian eye that kind of thing, right? Okay. So ready? Here we go. For 10 seconds, I want you just to moan. Ready? And action. All right. Was that the longest ten seconds of your life right off there? Okay, go ahead and have a seat. God help you. Could you imagine just that? Did you see how fun? No, that wasn't fun, was it? Could you just see how rough that was for him for ten seconds? Imagine two and a half million people not inside their tents, standing at the te- the door of their tent. Why? So Moses could hear them better, right? That's the reason, right? And Moses says the minute where Moses was, they're all like, hey! could you imagine? No wonder why Moses wants to, like, hand in his card. I'm done, man. I was better with a sheep when I was talking to a bush. What in the world is this? Could you imagine? So it says, listen, Moses heard the people weeping. and That word's bakah, that's the that same word. Throughout their families, everyone at the door of their tent. And the anger of the Lord was, greatly aroused at the beginning of the chapter when the people complained and God fried the outskirts his anger was aroused literally that meant remember his nostrils glowed now his nostrils his nostrils are like giving off light you know at this point now it's like supernova nose and it's like anger of the Lord's greatly aroused and Moses was displeased too but here's the problem Moses wasn't displeased as much with the people according to the next text Moses was displeased with God so Moses said, why and this by the way, this is what happens when we start playing this game with God. Why, God? You start playing the why game and you know you're in trouble. Why? Why is that person like that? Why is that person not quit? Why is that person still at our church? Why is that person pretend like they like me, but they say these things? Why, why, why? Why did I lose somebody I loved? Why is if someone and please understand, show me one place in scripture where God ever does anything for one reason. This is the perfect multitasker who holds every one of our atoms together at one time, keeps the entire universe from falling apart. And everything that happens, he does in such a way so that every, I mean, everything he does ripples to a million different people. Could you imagine if God actually answered your why the way he could? Our brains would explode, and then you would ask God why your brain exploded. God, why did that happen? Well, because of this, and because of this, and because of this. And this person who you don't know yet, and I'm, that's like the ultimate game of chess. So when you start playing the game, it's like, you know what you've done? You've afflicted me. I don't have the grace you promised me. And you've put a burden too heavy on me. That's what we play when we play that game. That word affliction, by the way, an important word, can you say, is the word we get evil from. And it literally means harm or destruction or, in this case, affliction. Same word we'll see in a moment. Then you I? did I earn this? Did I conceive these people? Did I give birth to them so that you should tell them carry them in your bosom? Can I say, if you believe you're called to ministry, you are called to carry people in your bosom. Now, I'm not talking about literally. You're not like, going to do something weird here. The idea is, is somewhere here, you carry people so that you wake up in the middle of the night and you find yourself praying for them. Here's the difference. You're not my problem. <laughs> I'm not my problem. God's problem. My goal is to get you to Him. If I can get you to the center of the camp, He will totally take care of you. My job is not to provide. My job is to promote, to lead. And yours is too. But Moses has lost that perspective for a moment. So he says, did I conceive these people? Did I I do this so you should say carry them like like someone would carry a nursing child? And then notice Moses' question. Remember when the people asked, who will give this to us? Moses' question is in verse 13, and then as where? Now it's a different question altogether. Now, from an unbeliever mixed, you know, people perspective, that's going to be, who's going to give this to me? We should never act like that. As a Christian, what we can do is say, well, where am I going to get this, Lord? And that's, by the way, kind of what Jesus said, if you remember back in John chapter 6, in regards to feeding 5,000 men and their families. He saw a great multitude coming, he turns to Philip and he says, now where are we going to get bread? That's the question. Lord, where are you going to provide? Because we know that it's wrong to ask who as a Christian, right? So it isn't like, it isn't like, Lord, who's going to be that? And we play weird. Who's going to be the person to, you know, who's going to make me feel content and complete? Now it's just like, Lord, where are you going to come up with my husband? It's still the same question. It just sounds different. Who's going to give me the meat? Now it's like, where am I going to get it? Where am I going to get it? These people weep all over me. Could you imagine? One thing, you know, and remember this was a guy, can I remind you, who killed an Egyptian taskmaster and buried him in the sand. Now he's 80 now, I'll grant you that. But I think he's probably got a little bit of Jason Bourne in him somewhere. Then I think he could probably drop someone here. I mean, sooner or later, everyone's crying on top of you. You're going to go throw a punch on someone. But we don't read it. If, or if he's doing it anyway, he's doing it to the Lord. Because goes, look, I can't bear this. I can't do this alone. Now, by the way, for what it's worth, all the way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 18, Jethro shows up. That's Moses' his father-in-law. He sees Moses working himself to death, and he says, you know what you need to do? You really need to get some help. But people handle the smaller cases, and then if they can't figure it out, then let them come to you. And he elects 70 guys, for he follows his, father's, his father-in-law's orders. That's in Exodus 18. So there already were sort of 70 guys who were kind of in action. But apparently, by this point, it seems like they're not doing their job anymore. So he's like, remember those 70 guys? Because he'll tell us the elders. So there's a specific group. Hey, pull them up, and let's get them busy again. Interesting for what it's worth, by the way, that 70 can become the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council in Jesus' day. But even Jesus, if you'll remember, by the way, in Luke 10, will send out 70, two by two. So for whatever it's worth, there is this. He's like, I'm going to take my spirit that's upon you, and I'm going to put it on them as well. Now, for what it's worth, it's important to note that God never gives His Spirit with measure. That's what He tells us in Scripture. So I'll never have more Holy Spirit than you do, in that sense. But the Holy Spirit's a person. He's not just an it. So it isn't about how much of it I have. Since He is a person, we should be more concerned with how much of us He has. Then God says, look at, I hear you. I hear you crying. And I hear you saying, your crying has caused you to crave Egypt again. And say, why did we ever leave? Why did I ever say yes to Jesus? Why did I ever do this? People are making fun of me now. You know, work's a lot harder now than it used to be. You know, I'm confused about my future or my career. Things seemed so clear before, and now I don't even know what in the world's going on. And, you know, it's like things are so spinning, I don't even get it. Why did I even do this? And God says, you know what's going to happen? I'll give you what you want more than you can have until it becomes loathsome to you. Please hear me. God knows if you got a really good taste of the world, you'd hate it. We just forget. And so what happens is, he'll do that, by the way, with his nation. Ultimately, they'll be sent off. He's like, you like idols? Well, go to Babylon then. It's like idol capital. There's more idols than people. And once they come back from Babylon they will never crave another idol. You'll never see it in Scripture from that point on, another idol in in Israel. Now, please hear me on this. We're almost done. If we don't hate our sin, all we'll do in the end will be hate the earthly results. And you can tell the difference. Some guy does something stupid. And it messes with his family. And now his wife hates him, his kids hate him he's caught in this sin or whatever the case is and you're sitting there and you want to reconcile them and you want to see this thing where the man's reconciled to the Lord where he's reconciled to his family and you want to see that and what happens is you start asking let me ask you do you hate the sin or its consequences because sooner or later the wife if she's seeking the Lord she will find a way the Lord will move through her to forgive him the children by God's grace will step up and say you know what okay wait a minute I'm going to love my dad after all and when the moment the circumstance lessens if all you hated were the circumstances, you'll go back into the sin. Unless you hate the sin. And I can tell you right now, most of what we have, and we're not supposed to be governed by consequence. We're supposed to be governed by conscience. That's what would be the difference between us and the rest of the world. Let's face it, if it said, speed limit, so-and-so, unless there was somebody that could write you a ticket, that means nothing to the rest of the world. And sadly enough, for most of us, it could mean the same. Unless you're really like, you know what, that's, that's a law now and I need to follow it. You're like, but people will honk behind me. Yeah, probably because they want to break the law, but don't don't let that change your mind. Please, please hear me on this. God's like, look at, I'm going to give you your desire, even though that desire is not what I want to give you. But I'm going to give it to you because the end result is you're going to hate this with me. Because see, the reason God hates it is it's a cancer that kills you. And God hates anything that hurts you because he loves you. Does that make sense? So please hear me. What God's going to do then, it's quite simple, is he's going to bring these quail. And they're going to go a day's journey and outside of the camp here and a day's journey outside of the camp there. Which leads me to believe, you know, if I'm going to get this, I'm going to have to leave the camp to get it. Does that make sense? He never brought it into the camp for good reason, because from the very beginning of this, God—if God wanted this for them, He would have given it to them, or He would have at least waited for them to ask. But they didn't ask. They moaned and they whined. Another like, "This is look at you know what? If I don't do this, I, you know, then I'll forget it. I'm just going back to Egypt." And God's like, "You know what? You don't even know what you're asking." please, I need this girl. She's perfect for me. And God's like, no, she's not. No, 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 God, whatever it takes, I'm going to get that girl. And God's like, no, you don't want her. And you get her and then you're like, God, deliver me from this woman. Aren't you thankful that the Lord isn't like, I told you so. One last, do you know how many times I've visited someone in the hospital or families that say, because they said one last, you know it too as much as we look at this what's going to happen is God's like "Look at, it's available for you but it doesn't belong in the camp please understand the difference between lust is not just when you have sex with someone because if that's the case most gals will be like that's a man's thing God has given you every appetite you have but he has a menu for every appetite importance fellowship, intimacy. God give you those appetites. But God has a menu for every one of them. And the enemy, well, his menu is a lot more broad. I'll be honest with you. It sure is. But it's all from the same thing. All the way back in the book of Eden, in the garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, if you remember, we had the entire garden but a tree. Do you remember that? Remember the first thing the enemy said? Did God say you couldn't eat from any tree in this garden? You tried to make it sound like God was the party pooper, the ultimate spoil sport. Look at how limiting God is. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. It's funny, people are like, oh, you Christians, you know, it's like, it's all about one thing. Wouldn't you love it to be all about Jesus? If your songs are all about Jesus. Wouldn't I love that to be the case? There's so many things called Christian music that I can be honest. I'm like, this is, this is anti-Christian. What are you talking about? But it's like, oh yeah, your songs are so varied. I's like, I want to get wet and jiggy with you all night long. It was like, yeah, all those songs. Look at how varied the subject matter is. Sex, 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 sex. And oh, there's this sex one over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at how varied your thing is. Listen, can I just say, we get the garden, you get a shrub. That's the difference. But the enemy's going to play that game with you. And he's going to go, look at, look at my menu. It's got lots of things on it. It's color and sparkly. And it even comes on an iPad now, so you can see it's shiny. And it's, like, it's got 3D graphics. You need this. And it's like, and you know what happens? But the Lord says, and from this point on, there's the problem. We're going to be accountable. He's going to say, but that's outside of the camp. You can't get that in here for a reason. Because all good and perfect gifts come from the Father of heavenly lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning. Man, if you don't have it, and he's not giving it, it ain't good. Hey, well, it could be good. Hey, here's the good news. Some of those things could be good later. But if you get them now, they're not good. Hey, Ruthie, my 10-year-old, may grow up to be a lumberjack. Now, that's not, you know, weirder things have happened. But I can guarantee you, giving her a chainsaw now is a very bad idea. She would want one. She would want one and go, why don't I get, why don't I get, why don't I get? Because I love the rest of my family, that's why. (laughs) I love your sister. And sometimes the Lord says it's good, it's just not good now. But if He's all knowing and all powerful, don't you think? And He's all caring, don't you think? If He's not giving, it's a good reason for it. And you know, here's the problem: the more you stare outside the camp at it, because you could say, "But there it is. It's close enough to touch. It's close. It's close enough. I it's almost close enough. It's close enough to touch." You're walking away from the camp to do that, and you know it. Is that what you want? It's like, what if we really hated what he didn't give? What would happen to us? So by the time this is done, and let me just say this, outside of the camp is a pile of ashes from people who complained against God last time. And then we took all of these quail, these endless barrels of them, and we laid them all out in the same place outside the camp. I said, anyone who wants it, it's right outside the camp now. You know what happened? Is God's people, or the mixed multitude, you can argue on that, brought it to where it was just outside the camp now. It was a day's journey before. But now, oh baby, it's right there. And Can I dare say, we can do that too. We get it so close that sinning is just convenient now. God doesn't want that what if we crave like David one thing I desire and that I will seek after that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all day? I don't even want to be around it. I want to be in it. God's like, hey, if I could give you anything, what would you have? He's like, can I move in? What if we were there? One thing I desire. What if that's where we were? You know what would happen? We would realize that all those horrible counterfeits are really horrible counterfeits. And we would be so filled with a joy that overwhelms. By the way, those elders, you know where those elders were? They were wrapped around the tabernacle. If God's going to say, I'm going to put you to serve, you need to be at the center with me. Does that make sense? Interesting, by the way, a little side note. There were two guys, by the way, one guy's named God loves, and the other one means just loved or affectionate, that were also not there, but they were still prophesying. Can I just warn you, just because a guy starts doing something like that doesn't mean he's at the center of the camp. That's what I'm learning here. You say, "But I went to this place and this guy did all of these crazy cool things and he spoke this way and he shook his head and he, you know, and the hair didn't move, that was kind of a miracle. and then he waved his coat and people flocked and he did this and that. It's like, look just because something crazy happens does not mean they're at the center of the camp. that's what God's telling us here. And the desire isn't to be them, the desire is to be with him here. What if we were that? What if we as a church said, that's what I want. Jesus at the center." You know what would happen? We'd start loving each other. But here's the cool part. It's already happening. I watch you guys talk to each other and you're so varied and so different from such various places. And then it's like Turks talking to Greeks and this and that, and it's like other places people scratch their head and say, Does that really happen? And in the body of Christ it does. For a good reason. And the Finnish sit with the Swedes and they sit there and they don't call each other zits and crazy things like that. It's like cool to watch. The old and the young and the rich and the poor and the educated and seemingly less or whatever, it doesn't matter. An extremely white and a hip hop dancer sit next to each other and go, Praise the Lord, yo, yo, yeah, whatever it is, it's cool to watch. You know why? Because if it's about Jesus, if everything gets about Jesus, all this other stuff becomes so irrelevant. Okay, as we go to prayer, can I just ask, what's at the center of your camp? And if Jesus is at the center of the camp, how close are you to that? Because if you feel like you're drying up. Where are you looking? Where are you standing? You feel like, but I don't have, I don't have. Really? That's what you're going to let your life be defined by, what you don't have? Well, then you know what's going to happen. You're going to start talking like that, too. Or maybe you already are. Man, if we could get to that center. And all that is, by the way, It's just a craving to let Jesus be everything. Hey, that means I'm going to lose some things. Yeah, yeah, you are. God willing, you'll be distanced from everything and that's going to be. But wait a minute. Are you telling me that I don't need to go live in a cave and be a monk? No, what I'm telling you is if Jesus is at the center of your life, he will actually send you into very dark places that can't be dark when you're there to represent him in such a way people will come to Christ. You won't be there actually trying to get that girl to like you. You'll actually want to see her come to Christ. There's a difference. And all of a sudden, you'll be looking more at the need than the outer appearance. You'll be looking for what we could give instead of what we could get. Well, let's pray. Let's pray that God would move in our hearts in such a way. You pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much that you have, in your word now, challenged us again as we seek to live this trumpet-ready life where we're always ready to follow you and your leading wherever that would be. To the widow and the orphan. To the Christian in need. To the unbeliever who desperately needs to hear about a Savior. We want to be ready for your call. Well, at least in this building where we know that's the right thing to do. But but tomorrow, we want to live trumpet-ready lives, too. And in that, I know that the things that we've cherished that don't belong to you need to let go of, that we could grow up the way we should, not just grown up. And with that, Lord, you need to fry the outskirts of our camp, the stuff that will never submit to you like our flesh nature that you say cannot be subject to. You. And with that, Lord, as well, I just pray right now for every person here and myself as well. Lord, that we would crave the center where we could just be with You and let You add all other things. Isn't that what You told us? That we're to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness, to seek You first. And Lord, it can be so, I confess to You, it can be so sparkly and I confess that we can have spiritual ADD. It's like even in our prayers, we start and it's like, squirrel, we can't even like pay attention and it's there we are saying Jesus I love you and I want to make you everything and then there's something that's just so irrelevant and if you don't give it if you don't bring it Lord it is harmful it's afflicting God I just don't want that to be me and I don't want that to be our fellowship here. I don't want that to happen here for the sake of your name Lord I don't want the world to look and think that we have nothing more than they do but a set of rules that they wouldn't want to follow. Lord God, please, come and make your home at the center of our very being, where there be nothing that doesn't reconcile to you. That we don't say, well, this part belongs to God, but this is my job, or this is my whatever, whatever. Look, All my entire life becomes ministry. Every one of us. All our entire life becomes ministry. Whether it's the workplace, and we want to work well, it be clear to give credit to whom that belongs or whether that be among our friends and our downtime whether that be in our dreams and inspirations and aspirations, whether that be in our creativity, whatever it be, Lord, may you be the very center, because I know that out there is salt water that the more we drink, the more vacant we become. Out there is candy floss that though it may be sweet to our taste, we cannot live on it. And Lord, I pray today for every person here that is a believer first, God, that we would clearly, would clearly seek to make in this clarion call, you, the very center of our and let the world be seen for what it is. Let it be truly abhorrent to where, Lord, it would be as disgusting as foul going through our nose. And Lord, let us not bring anything of the world to the outskirts of the camp. But rather, Lord, let us gloriously and faithfully just relinquish it and let you do what you want to do. Bring into the camp who you want, Lord, but let us truly be planted and prosper where you have us now, I pray. And now, Lord, as that has gone forth and your Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts, including my own, if there be anyone in this room right now who was or within the sound of this voice who isn't sure whether they've said yes to Jesus or sure they haven't, but today you realize that it's simple receiving a gift that God offers his payment for your sins. His resurrection now. His death to be your Savior. And His resurrection to be your Lord. And if that's you today, then I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. You know it. I know it. And you as a righteous judge punish sin. But since you've left the provision of letting Jesus pay for my sins on the cross, and since he did pay for my sins on the cross, I gladly receive that payment on my behalf, confessing Jesus is my Savior. And as he died, and just as you prophesied, just as he foretold, on the third day he rose again, now deserving to be my Lord and not just my Savior, I say yes. I hand myself to Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord, the reinventor of my life. Come and live in the very center of me now and let you be the one thing for whom all of my life revolves and orbits around. So be the very sun in my universe. Be the very center, the foundation of my life, I pray. Now, I may not understand everything, but I know this much. Handing my life to you is the best choice I can make, and so I say yes. So here I am. I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.